Our meditation this evening from the book of Revelation be considering various passages from this book. But I'm taking as our text tonight, verse 2 of chapter 6. And I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. How goes the world? Answering that question according to the news media or the internet generates despair, fear, anger. The world seems to be in chaos economically, socially, politically, religiously. Not only does apostate Christianity seem to dwarf orthodoxy, but those religions that hate the very name of Christ are multiplied at an alarming rate and even within our own borders. There are many things in this old world that are scary. So how do we explain this in light of what we profess regarding the certain success and the certain advance of the Church of Christ. Who's to blame for the mess of this world? And even Christians will sometimes resort to a false hope to somehow stem the tide of evil and somehow reverse the trends of darkness and political rhetoric. But the bottom line is that it is the gospel that is the answer to all opposition whether it's political, whether it's religious, whether it's hellish. God is in constant control of history. And since all of history is redemptive in its focus, and all of history is redemptive in its progression as God is working to reverse the curse, is a certain fact that God is unwaveringly on track to accomplish that redemptive purpose in Christ. And all the opposition that scares us and seemingly from our perspective frustrates the advancing of the kingdom is just a component. It's just a component in the government of God's control. This has always been true historically Remember when Israel went down into Egypt there to escape the famine, that they received favored treatment. They were placed in the best part of the land and they enjoyed prosperity and they multiplied, enjoying the favor even of the Egyptians. But the psalmist tells us something very interesting in Psalm 105, that God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate his people. That God turned the hearts of the Egyptians to hate the people. And then God turned that hatred into a way of manifesting his grace, a way of manifesting 
his glory. I say that was true in the past. It's true in the future, as we see in many of the passages in Revelation. And it's true for the present. For the God of then, whether it's the then of the past or the then of the future, is the God of now. And so we can learn from history, we can learn from that which God reveals yet to come as a means of encouraging our own hearts and giving us confidence that indeed the Lord is in control. Book of Revelation is a book for a troubled age. Whenever the state exalts itself and demands allegiance from the church, contrary to truth, Revelation has a word of exhortation has a word of encouragement for his people, for us, the church. It reveals that every plot against God, every plot against Christ, every plot against the divine purpose is going to fail and will meet with judgment. My theme tonight is simply this, that worldly kingdoms will fail. But God's kingdom prevails. Worldly kingdoms will fail. God's kingdom will always prevail. I confess tonight that this sermon is not structured in great homiletical artistry. I see some students out there. Don't follow my example tonight in terms of the structure of our development. But yet there's a truth here, a truth here that I want us to grasp, a truth here that I want us to rely upon as we face the difficulties and face the uncertainties of the time in which we live. I'm drawing attention tonight to the white horse. Revelation is a book that is rich with symbolism. Sometimes that complicates the interpretation of how we understand the book. Numbers are symbolic. Colors are symbolic. These symbols are sometimes complex, but these symbols are always consistent. The white horse. White throughout the book speaks of innocence and it speaks of purity and it speaks of righteousness. It speaks of perfection. The white is always a very positive color in this book, whether it's the garments, the white garments that are given, whether it's the white stone, whether it's the white hair, whether it's the white horse. White always consistently in this book speaks of that which is righteous and that which is perfect and that which is pure. Our four horsemen, four different colored horses that we see in Revelation chapter 6. And each of these horses, it's certainly clear that the red horse, as it speaks of war, and the black horse, as it speaks of the famine and the pale horse that it speaks of death in general. 
that those are abstracts that are riding then, if you will, upon this horse, those horses. And I would conclude from that that the rider of the white horse is also an abstraction. There are some that see this as the Antichrist. There are some interpreters that view the rider on the white horse to be the Antichrist, a counterfeit white, turning the picture and the symbolism right upside down, and we reject this immediately. There are some that are going to interpret the rider of the white horse to be Christ himself, and I'm not opposed to that in principle because later on, in very real way, Jesus is going to appear on that white horse. But in this part of the vision, in this part of the vision, I want to be consistent, and I want to see that the rider of the white horse, an abstraction, is the conquest of righteousness. It's the conquest of the gospel that goes forth, that goes forth on that is going to be something that we see all the way through this sometimes mysterious book. I remember when I was a kid, I didn't like this book. I didn't like this book. I did not have the privilege that you have, and many of you have, of growing up in a Reformed congregation. I grew up in dispensationalism. And invariably, every time something happened in the world, and I date myself now, but I still recall, I still recall when Nikita Khrushchev, some of you don't know who he is, some of you do, uh, was there pounding his shoe on the desk of the United Nations, looking at that camera saying, we're going to bury you, we're going to bury you, yeah, us. That was fodder for sermons. All right, that was fodder for sermons, and how many sermons I heard scaring us to death about what the Antichrist was going to do and the rider on the white horse, but no, 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 no. Nothing negative here, it's a positive message. And to see that from all the way through this book, we have the white horse that is making his way, is making his way right across the scene of time. What a positive message. What a glorious message it is. What a happy book this is. I say for God's people who are living in troubled times, who are living in difficult times, who are living in times that are hostile to the truth of the gospel, what a message this is that God is going to triumph, and God is triumphing, progressing. So I ask the question again, how goes the world? How goes the world? In the light of white horse theology, yeah? In the light of white horse theology, it's going exactly where God has purposed and planned it to go. Everything is going to be okay. So in the light of this white horse, I want to make three admonitions and give you three admonitions from particularly these opening chapters of Revelation. Three admonitions in light of the white horse. I say first of all that we are to rely on the throne of sovereignty. To rely on the throne of sovereignty. And here our attention is going to be in chapters 4 and 5 particularly. You can't read these chapters without being impressed with the reference to the throne. Word throne occurs 61 times. 
in the New Testament. 46 of those times are in Revelation. And 14 of those are in chapter 4 alone. The throne, a symbol of supremacy. The throne, a symbol of power and authority. A symbol of rule. The Lord sits upon a throne. Not a bleacher. No bleachers in heaven. God is not a spectator. God is not just looking at what is happening on this earth. Oh, he knows. He knows, and God is omniscient, and there's nothing that is happening on this old planet that God is not infinitely aware of. That's the pattern of the book here that we see a heavenly scene followed by an earthly scene. And as you read the book, pay attention to that. We start in heaven, and then we go to earth. We come back to heaven, and we go back to earth. Chapter 1, you have that glorious revelation of the exalted Christ that John has on the Isle of Patmos, a heavenly scene. But then chapters 2 and 3 bring us to those seven churches. And now in chapter 4 and 5, we're back to heaven as we have this heavenly scene of of the throne of God. Come to chapter 6, we're back on earth. Come to chapter 7, we're back in heaven. On that goes all the way through. It gives us the confidence. It gives us the confidence to know that there is nothing happening on this planet. There is nothing happening on earth that God does not know. But you know that that truth by itself is not particularly comforting. If all I can say is that God knows about my trouble. If all I can say is God knows about what is happening, it raises the question, then why does he do something about it? Why does he allow things to go like this? No, it is not simply that God knows what is happening. It's a throne. God has determined, and God has dictated, and God has decreed, and God has planned everything that is happening. He sits upon the throne, controlling Governing, manipulating, yes, even even the hostility, even the hostility, ultimately, to his glory. So in light of the white horse, I'm saying, first of all, then, let's rely on the throne of sovereignty. In chapter 4, the focus is on the throne of government. Look at the door that was opened in heaven, verse 1. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one that sat upon the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like jasper and the sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald, and round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices that were the seven lamps of fire burning before the Lord, before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like unto crystal. There is a description of this heavenly throne, a throne that God is sitting upon by virtue of his creation. Look at verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, 
to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So as John now is taken up into heaven in this vision, he sees this throne, and the one seated upon that throne is seated there by virtue of his being the creator. What does creation speak to us of? It speaks to us of the power of God. The power of God. Creation is uniquely divine activity. Only God creates. What a demonstration of his omnipotence. And in creation, there was no exertion of divine energy. There was no work that God had to expend that took away his power. He simply spoke. Let there be, and there was. Let there be, and there was. Let Just the spoken word. What power there is in the fact that God is the creator of all the heavens. And the, we made that confession. I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. We begin our service in the votum, asking help from God who made the heaven and the earth. What power there is in the fact that he is the creator. But because he's the creator, he's the owner. He owns everything that he creates. It belongs to him. And because it belongs to him, he has the prerogative. He has the prerogative to do with that creation whatever it is that he so desires to do. Everything. He may, everything is for him, everything is by him, everything is subject to his rule. The throne of government, here's the throne of government, mysterious. You see the description that is given to us, it's awesome, it's awesome, it's strong, it's glorious, it's unfailing. And I love the fact there at verse 3, there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. A throne of covenant mercy. The rainbow speaks to us, does it not, of that covenant loyalty, that covenant mercy that God has made concerning this planet, that this planet would continue until the curse reverser would come and do his work. The, mercy, the covenant mercy of God, what a beautiful picture is the rainbow. And it's amazing here, isn't it? We think of a rainbow as, as an arch, a beautiful arch. The most beautiful rainbow I ever saw in my life was in Israel. We were there on Megiddo, the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon, overlooking the valley of Jezreel, the valley of Jehoshaphat. The rain had just stopped, and from one end of the Valley of Jezreel to the other end of the Valley of Jezreel was this magnificent, this magnificent rainbow, a place associated with war. But now here is this manifestation of the peace and the covenant mercy of God. How beautiful it was. But it was just an arch. Here's a bow that encircles, a bow that completely encircles that heavenly throne. Every decision that, made, that comes out of that throne, every decree that the Lord makes from that throne is now encompassed. It's now encompassed by that covenant mercy. It's a mysterious throne. It's also majestic. It's attended by the various worshipers. You have the redeemed represented by the 24 elders. You have the ministering spirits that are there. It's a fearful place. It's a fearful place, lightnings and thunders coming from it. 
So flawless, you have the seven spirits, divine perfection of omniscience and omnipotence, it's there. But what I'm mostly impressed with for our meditation this evening is verse 6. And before the throne there was a sea of glass, like unto crystal. A sea of glass. In Revelation, the sea, the waters, are symbolic of the nations. For instance, in chapter 17, verse 15, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. The waters, the sea, represent the nations. You may remember in Daniel's vision, remember in Daniel chapter 7, as Daniel had that vision of, that, uh, of those monsters, as it were, that were coming out of the sea, out from the nations. This one comes and this one comes out of the nations. The sea represents the nations. And what is more fluctuating? What's more fluctuating than the seas? Never a moment is the sea the same. It's restless. There's uprising. There's waves and there's billows and there's turmoil. That's how we see the sea. The sea is never the same. Here are these nations. As we look at it, we see the waves and we see the billows and we see the turmoil. But that sea before the Lord was like glass. It was just as smooth, just as calm as glass. Oh, we see the agitation. We see the turmoil. We see the waves that are billowing against. But before the throne, it's just these nations are just as calm, just as controlled, a sea of glass. Hard for us to understand. But we're looking at it from where we are. And God is looking at it from where he is, upon the throne. Everything, all the nations under control, everything under God's control. So we look and we focus upon that throne of government. But chapter 5 gives us another perspective of the throne. Not only is it a throne of government, it's also a throne of grace. A throne of grace. And now the attention is specifically upon the mediatorial rule of Jesus Christ, who rules now by virtue of redemption. In chapter 4, we saw God upon the throne by virtue of creation. In chapter 5, look at verse 9. They sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, tongue, and people, and nation. By virtue of redemption. Now by virtue of redemption, by virtue of the sacrifice that Jesus made in behalf of his people. He's now here as our mediatorial ruler, our mediatorial king. Christ is doubly king. He's king by virtue of the fact that he is God and therefore sovereign, the creator of all things. But he's the mediatorial ruler as well for his people. Whereby he rules us, he conquers us. And all of our enemies, he conquers his people by grace. He conquers his enemy with the rod of iron, but conquer he does. And conquer he will 
That's why the psalmist gives the admonition to kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish from the way. So here's the focus. Here's the focus upon the mediatorial kingship of Jesus. Oh, in person, in person he has all the credentials. He has the infinite worth. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. There is his royal lineage. In his humanity, that royal lineage that was fulfilling, fulfillment of the covenant that God had made with David. We see his position of preeminence. He's in the midst of the throne. He's in the midst of the throne. When John first looks, here are these seals that we're going to be looking at. Who's, who's going to open up these seals? Nobody. And John is crying and he's weeping and he's frustrated and he's, he, he's mourning the fact and discouraged that nobody seems to be worthy to open up these seals, to uncover now the whole course of history. But here's Jesus. And Jesus was there in the midst of the throne the whole time. And somehow John missed it. Somehow John, as he looks at this throne at first, misses it. There's Jesus in the midst of the throne. But he's so taken up with the circumstances. He's so taken up with his own captivity there in Patmos. He's so taken that he misses seeing Jesus. But when he sees Jesus, when he finally sees Jesus, he can't take his eyes off of him. And it puts everything in that proper perspective. I think that's where we are so many times. We see Jesus. We know theory, we know doctrine, but yet we get so taken up. We get so taken up at times with the stuff that we see going on in this old world. We see all of the hostility and we see all the troubles and it's all we can see and we get discouraged. We need to see Jesus. And seeing Jesus, seeing Jesus in his preeminent position, John stopped his weeping, couldn't take his eyes off Jesus now, and everything now becomes in the proper perspective. And there's his passion, his power. Who is this Jesus? He's the seven-horned ram. Oh, no longer is this the meek and lowly Jesus that we see. Here's the exalted Jesus sitting now at God's right hand, sitting upon that throne, the exalted Jesus, the seven-horned ram of power, the horn speaking of power, and now the seven speaking of the perfection of that power. Here is the omnipotence of this one that sits as our mediatorial king. All focus on this throne of grace. This white horse. In the light of this white horse, let us be encouraged, for our God is upon the throne. He has all authority. And there's Jesus upon the throne. He has all the heart and the power to guide and to decree and to govern. This is not just some pill that we take as Christians to make us oblivious to what reality is. This is not some narcotic that we take just to salve us. In, no, this is reality. This is more. This is more real. You understand this? This what we are seeing, and this is more real than what we see with the physical eye. God, Christ, upon the throne. So let us learn to rely on that throne of sovereignty. That's the first admonition. 
The second admonition is this, that we must recognize the theater of providence. Let us recognize the theater of providence. The earth is the stage, if I can use that imagery. The earth is the stage in which God acts to reveal his glory and accomplish his purpose. This earth belongs to the Lord. We sang tonight from Psalter 24, the earth is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Oh, there is a sense, yes, the scripture tells us, that Satan is the God of this world, but not a God at all. Satan's a God of this world, like Marduk was the God of Babylon, like Dagon was the God of the Philistines false God, no power, ultimately, in comparison to our God. You have those that are arguing that God, that the earth belongs to Satan. I've heard this. The earth belongs to Satan, and now God is trying to reclaim the earth to be his possession. The Bible tells me that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There's no territory that God needs to reclaim. The earth belongs to him. The earth belongs to him. He accomplishes his purpose. But the problem is for us that all we see is what we can see. All we can see is what we can see. And we fail then to see the big picture and where the purpose of God is going. So God reveals to us in his word more than we can see with the physical eye. And it is for us, it is for us to believe. All the hostility, past and present, all of that God is reversing from the very beginning of the gospel message in Genesis 3.15. Step by step and moment by moment and people by people and nation by nation, God is doing his purpose, fulfilling his purpose to reverse the curse. To reverse the curse. Everything happened to be for the coming of Christ in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, Christ made of a woman, made under the law. Nothing could frustrate the first coming of Christ. Nothing will frustrate the second coming of Christ. God's in control. What we see on earth is the exercise of the providence of God. Now that brings us to chapter 6, where we have now these seals that are being opened by Christ that reveal to us, if you will, the course of human history. They reveal to us now the scope of human history and God's control. So here's the theater, I say, of providence as he opens up for us and gives us a little perspective, a little sight of what eternity, of what history is. And we have the four, we start with these four horsemen of the apocalypse are often called. There's the red horse, conflict, war. There's the black horse, famine, economic chaos, economic disaster. There's the pale horse, literally the sickly green horse, death, 
of every sort. Don't we see that? Part of our discouragement and part of our distress today is we, we hear the wars and the rumors of wars. We pray for what was going on in Ukraine tonight. There's war. We just heard of this, this earthquake, death coming in that way. The economic chaos that we're seeing. All of this is part of these horses. But the first horse. The first horse is this white horse, a white horse. Righteousness, here's the gospel, the going forth of righteousness, the going forth of the gospel. He's armed, he has the bow, he's got the power to accomplish his purpose. You think what the gospel does, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's victorious, got a crown. The word crown here is going to be a couple words in Revelation that are translated as crown. This particular crown here is that one that is won, the victor's crown. The name Stephen, all right, the name Stephen, that maybe some of you have that name, comes from this Greek word for crown. It's a crown that belongs to the victor, a crown that has been won. And so here is the evidence of victory. And the mission is to conquer and go on conquering in order to conquer. And I say, here's the gospel. Does this not correspond to the promise that Christ has given concerning the church? I will build my church, Jesus said. I will build my church. So that not even the gates of hell, the defensive mechanisms of hell itself, not even the gates of hell can withstand the advancing of the church. The church is advancing, advancing. This is the word of Jesus. This is the word of Christ. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? That notwithstanding what we see, that notwithstanding all of the darkness and the distress and the scary stuff that we see, that Jesus is building his church. But all we see is what we see. It looks so often that we're overwhelmed with the stuff and the gospel doesn't appear to be, but all we can see is what we can see. Where are we? Places in this world that are seeing, sometimes in midst of persecution, but the church is advancing. And we're going to see that it's going to be a glorious advance. So here comes the white horse. But there's war, and there's famine, and there's economic chaos. Yeah, but here comes the white horse. Do you see the white horse? Here comes the white horse. There goes the white horse, conquering and to conquer the power that there is in the gospel, the conquest, the conquest of righteousness. And that leads to my last admonition, that we are to relax in the triumph of the white horse. To relax in the triumph of the white horse. We rely on the throne of sovereignty, we recognize the theater of providence, but we relax in the triumph of the white horse. This brings us into chapter 7. Now we're back into heaven. Chapter 6 is earth. It's the stuff that's happening on earth, and what a terrible picture, what a terrible picture uh, we have of those that are crying for mercy as the judgment of God comes upon those that were the hostile agents to truth. Great day of wrath. That's the earthly scene. 
But now in chapter 7, we come back to heaven. And we see something about that eternal scene. Come to see these that have been sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Taking this, as it's explained for us in verse 9, to be the ideal Israel. To be the church. So just in case, and this is what the Lord does for us here, just in case we misunderstand the implications of what the ideal Israel is, it's explained for us in verse 9, I saw a great multitude, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb. What a number. What a number. Every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. Here is the gathering of God's elect from every age and even particularly those that have been saved through tribulation, through difficulties. White they are now by the blood of the Lamb. But what a number. What success. What success? A number that cannot be numbered. No one location. So it's not just talking about us here in Grand Rapids or in the United States. Every people. The gospel has gone forth. And now here is this heavenly scene that gives us the true sight of the success of that gospel. That the gospel has indeed triumphed. Who can number? Who can begin to number? I know we get the idea sometimes that just a few and just, yeah, but what a number this is, my. Great multitude. The success. The success and the triumph of the white horse. There was persecution. There was per but here comes the white horse. Here comes the white horse. There was darkness, but can you see the white horse? There was this trouble, in the but can you see the white horse? All the way through. God is accomplishing his purpose. God is incapable of being frustrated. The purpose of God is absolutely unfailing. The white horse. I close with three takeaways. Three takeaways from the white horse. First of all, remember that nothing happens contrary to God's purpose. Nothing happens contrary to God's purpose. He's not reclaiming the earth. He never relinquished it. Oh, the opposition becomes the ordered means. The opposition, the hostility becomes the ordered means that God is using to highlight his glory and his power. God caused the Egyptians to hate Israel. And God turned that hatred 
into a way of getting glory to himself. We look at the hostility. How can it be? How can it be? But God is so powerful. I love the way Nahum puts it there in the Song of Majesty in chapter 1, that God is great in power, slow to anger, slow to anger, great in power. As God juxtaposes, he puts together the greatness of God's power with the patience of God and the long-suffering of God. If I could just put it in these terms, I don't know how else to say it, that God can afford to be as long-suffering as he is with the hostility and the darkness of this world because he's as powerful as he is. There's nothing that threatens his power. There's nothing that threatens his purpose. Step by step by step, he's accomplishing his purpose in the providence of God. This is where we are in that plan. There's no better place for us to be than in the hand of God where he puts us to be. So let us rest in the fact. Let's remember that everything that we see, God in his own way is working his own glory. Second takeaway, that God's purpose is centered in the triumph of Christ. That God's purpose is centered in the triumph of Christ. It's the Christ of the gospel. It's the Christ of the gospel that this white horse reveals. And you go to chapter 19. You go to chapter 19 and now the white horse and Jesus is upon that white horse. And he has the double-edged sword in his mouth and he's victorious. And he has the diadems. You look at chapter 19. He has now crowns upon his head, but there are the diadems. Different word for crown. The diadem speaks of that crown that is owned by virtue of royalty. But he has innately by virtue of his being the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It is because of the diadem that he then gets the Stephanos, the, the, the victor's crown. Triumph is in Christ. And Christ has guaranteed. Christ has guaranteed. Christ did not die in vain. He did not come in vain. He came to save his people. He came to reverse the curse. That's what he has done and what he is doing. Nothing can frustrate the victory. Oh, there is victory in Jesus. And the third and final takeaway is that Christ's triumph then is conveyed to his people. Chapter 5, verse 10. Just this description of the majesty of Jesus. He says, Thou hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Overcomers. In the letters in chapters 2 and 3, the overcomers, his people share we are heirs of God. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything that Christ accomplished now becomes the possession and the experience of his people. Including ultimately the vindication and the defeat of every enemy. So come what may. I'm not saying I like the hostility. 
I'm not saying I like the darkness and the scary stuff. Who does? But God help us. God help us, particularly those of us that believe in the sovereignty of God, to live in the reality of that truth, to live in the reality that God is on his throne and that he rules well and that he rules all. And wherever we are, wherever we are, there's the white horse. So how goes the world? How goes the world? In the light of the white horse, it's going exactly as God has intended it to go. And as we learn what it is then to walk by faith and not by sight, it's going to be okay. Amen.